From Public Radio International, I'm Madeline Brand, and this is America Abroad, the show that brings global issues home. Mike Reynoso is the son of a Mexican immigrant. He was born and raised in Los Angeles. I grew up in the garment industry uh, since I was a little boy. My mother had a factory for over 25 years until uh, we had to close due to a lot of the manufacturing going overseas. Overseas to China, mostly. When the family's factory closed down, Reynoso had to find a new job. I am now a garment broker, and I work with a lot of garment manufacturers here in Los Angeles, and I also manufacture in Mexico. He's seen a lot of change in the industry, especially since NAFTA went into effect in 1994. The North American Free Trade Agreement significantly lowered trade barriers between the U.S., Canada, and Mexico. NAFTA definitely is something that helps us manufacturers on a business point of view. I I support it. Mexico is our neighbor, and... We need them as far as manufacturing goes. The reason why is that our capacity here in the U.S. has diminished. So having Mexico and their capacity has helped us to continue manufacturing close by. Reynoso doesn't see any need to change NAFTA, but President Trump is trying to renegotiate the deal. He may even cancel it outright. So I think we'll end up probably terminating NAFTA at some point. Okay. Reynoso doesn't seem worried about that because he's already diversified to other countries like China. And he believes Trump when he says he'll bring jobs back to the United States. I like what he's doing. I do think that he will bring more work to the U.S. Uh, It's a benefit for us here in in the U.S. and maybe for the apparel industry as well. The fact is, Trump has won over many Americans with his talk about bringing manufacturing back to the U.S. For decades, that has been a key issue for the left. When Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump talked to labor unions during the campaign, they didn't sound that different. You are not going to continue to shut down plants here and move to cheap labor abroad. You are not going to cut the wages and benefits of American workers and give CEOs huge compensation packages. Our politicians have aggressively pursued a policy of globalization, moving our jobs, our wealth, and our factories to Mexico and overseas. Globalization has made the financial elite who donate to politicians very, very wealthy. You could make an argument that trade was the biggest issue that put Donald Trump in the Oval Office. Edward Alden is a senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. He specializes in American economic competitiveness. States that he won the election in were places like Ohio and Pennsylvania and Michigan and Wisconsin and North Carolina, all the swing states. And those were the states that lost the highest percentage of jobs to import competition over the last 15 years. So there have been very clear winners and losers in the United States from trade. We all benefit as consumers, for example. Used to be back in the 1970s, the average household spent about 7% of its family budget on clothing. Today, it's about 3%. You know, you buy a lot of cheap clothes at the Target and the Walmart. So we all benefit a little bit, but the gains have been very unevenly distributed. 
Today on America Abroad, we try to separate the trade policy from the politics. We'll talk about why trade was one of the biggest issues that got Donald Trump elected, what Americans stand to gain and lose by pulling out of trade deals, and what really happened to American manufacturing jobs. We'll also look at how the rest of the world is preparing for a massive shift in U.S. policy, from a microbrewery in Tijuana to a medical manufacturer in Berlin. President Trump's protectionist stance is one that Americans have seen before. In fact, the conflict between free traders and protectionists is pretty much the same fight we've been having since the beginning of this country. First, it was with the British. When the U.S. was considering fighting for independence, trade and trade policy was a major source of friction between the U.S. and Britain. That's Douglas Irwin. He's an economics professor at Dartmouth College. His new book is called Clashing Over Commerce, A History of U.S. Trade Policy. They restricted where we could send our exports, and they basically dictated what the taxes would be on our imports and things of that sort. When American revolutionaries cried, no taxation without representation, they were talking about trade tariffs. Once we got the new Constitution and the new Congress established, one of the first things they did was uh, enact a tariff bill, which was taxes on imports. And, uh, of course, that was controversial at the time, and um, it's been controversial ever since. Controversial because the states with local manufacturing industries want higher import taxes, and the states that export the most goods want lower taxes. By the 1800s or so, we were exporting cotton, we were exporting tobacco, we were exporting other goods and crops made in, primarily in the South. So the South was sort of the export platform of the United States. Meanwhile, in Pennsylvania and some of the northern states, that's where you had small ironworks, small textile manufacturers, and things of that sort, and they were facing competition from imports from Britain. If the U.S. raised taxes on imports, it would make local manufacturers more competitive. But it would also lead foreign trading partners to raise their taxes on American cotton and tobacco. And so the northern and southern states were at odds. Most of the House districts in the north wanted uh, high tariffs, and most of the House districts in the South wanted low tariffs. Irwin says that dynamic hasn't changed much. Members of Congress from Ohio, from Pennsylvania, from the Rust Belt states, they still want to stop foreign competition or they're worried about imports from China, whereas the states in the South, particularly in the Southwest, are much more you know, in favor of NAFTA, in favor of trade agreements, and in favor of open trade. So we still see this division today. Today, the average tariff imposed at the U.S. border is 1.5%. But tariffs used to be a lot higher, at times averaging 60 percent. When did those protectionist policies give way to more open trade policies? Well, the turning point came after the Smoot-Hawley Tariff Act. It's the roaring 20s. It's the age of jazz, the age of radio. The economy is really booming. The stock market is soaring. Um, the economy is doing very well, except for one sector of the economy, which is the farming sector. Crop prices stagnated. Farmers were facing mounting debt. Throughout the 1920s, Congress tried enacting a number of domestic policies to help them. None of these policies really worked. And so what happened in 1928-29 is some members of Congress got the idea, well, maybe we could raise tariffs to try to help out farmers. The problem was is that most U.S. farmers were um, exporting their crops to the rest of the world. Uh, we were exporting wheat, we were exporting cotton, and imposing an import tariff doesn't affect the price they get for their crops, and it really doesn't help them out because they're not facing foreign competition. Foreign competition wasn't a big problem for U.S. manufacturers either, but small business owners supported the Smoot-Hawley bill. 
trying to fix something that's not broken. But the Republican members of Congress thought this would be a good idea for political reasons, and so they pushed this through. The bill made it through the House in the spring of 1929. Then, a few months later, in October, the stock market crashed. It was the beginning of the Great Depression. Meanwhile, desperate to save the economy, the Senate was holding a long and painstaking vote on Smoot-Hawley. They voted on every single line of the tariff bill, on the clothespin tariff, on the iron tariff, on the carriage tariff, on the underwear tariff. Roll call after roll call vote. When the law finally passed, it was a disaster. Other countries said, well, if you're going to raise your tariffs on our goods, we're going to do the same to you. And so that really began to hurt U.S. exports. U.S. exports began falling, and eventually the U.S. economy tumbled into the Great Depression. So while Smoot-Hawley wasn't responsible for the Great Depression per se, in everyone's minds, and for somewhat of a good reason, the two are linked. The Smoot-Hawley debacle led lawmakers to rethink trade policy. This is really the first time when protectionism got a bad name in the United States. It wasn't just the high tariffs that got a bad name. It was the entire system of U.S. trade policy. At that time, Congress was responsible for setting tariffs, and it set them unilaterally, no discussion with foreign trade partners. The new president, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, thought that needed to change. So in 1934, in the middle of the Great Depression, unemployment at more than 20 percent, his administration directed an overhaul of U.S. trade policy. And now Congress had decided under the Democrats to say, OK, the president has authority over trade policy and the president can start bargaining down the U.S. tariff in trade agreements with other countries. FDR began negotiating bilateral agreements, agreements with other countries. Tariff rates fell swiftly and steadily. And then something else, something even bigger happened. World War II. America goes to war. Men of the Army, Navy and Marines reinforce the battlefronts on six continents. What happened is during World War II and, and right after the war, trade policy really became part of foreign policy because it was recognized that trade policy is not just about economics, it's not just about domestic interest groups, but it's about whether we're going to get along with other countries in the, uh, the world and whether we're going to try to support each other by expanding trade to strengthen our economies. So we avoid Great Depressions, so we avoid political pressures for communism or fascism. It was this general sense that protectionism led to conflict in war and that open trade built greater ties or interdependence among nations and therefore led to peace. That's Mac Dessler. He's a professor of public policy at the University of Maryland. He says that shift, seeing trade policy as foreign policy, changed the way the world did business. After World War II, the U.S. and 22 other countries negotiated the GATT, the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, an international body to regulate trade. The GATT was meant to strengthen the American and European economies. It also formed a trade bloc that would counter the Soviet Union. When Nikita Khrushchev said, I will bury you around the beginning of the 1960s, he said later that he didn't have in mind burying us with nuclear weapons, but burying us by beating us economically. 
Over the next few decades, the GATT signatories held a series of talks to lower tariffs and liberalize trade. But some Americans were against the more open trade policies. Members of Congress would give speeches and say, we are sacrificing our economic welfare for illusory diplomatic benefits. And countries didn't always follow the rules set by the GATT. And so the Americans and the Europeans realized they needed a better enforcement mechanism. They created the World Trade Organization, or WTO. The way the WTO works is that there's compulsory dispute settlement, which is unusual for international law. Robert Howes is a professor of international law at NYU. And here's the crucial difference. The WTO decides disputes through litigation rather than diplomacy. That dispute settlement can result in a ruling that, that can then be enforced through sanctions, through economic penalties that are imposed by the winning country on the losing country. So it's a very effective system. The WTO is also effective at keeping supply chains running. Most of the products Americans use are made in multiple countries. A French designer might make a shirt using Egyptian cotton that's woven in India, sewn in Mexico, and sold in the United States. Robert Howe says the WTO makes that possible. The people who have a stake in both the production and consumption of the product have a stake in these supply chains being able to operate across international boundaries. And the World Trade Organization really does that because it stabilizes tariffs, for example. It stabilizes other restrictions. And it helps stabilize diplomatic relations because it settles trade disputes apolitically. It has the ability often to depoliticize trade disputes, to detach them from bigger political conflicts. And that kind of management of political tensions is a positive contribution to international peace and security. While the WTO tries to avoid politics, it has faced political backlash. And that's because it has paved the way for globalization, a globalization that prioritizes business over everything else. And so labor unions, environmentalists, and other activists on the left blame the WTO for lots of problems, such as the loss of American manufacturing jobs, factory pollution, poor working conditions in the developing world. There were mass protests during the 1999 meeting in Seattle. The anarchists were a tiny fraction of the thousands who marched on Seattle. In some ways, that was a high point of activist, left-leaning protectionism. Meanwhile, the Democratic Party was beginning to embrace free trade. Back in the mid-90s, while the U.S. was negotiating the WTO agreement, it was also launching NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement, with Canada and Mexico. Unlike the WTO, diplomatic considerations were at the heart of NAFTA. We've traditionally not had the best relationship with Mexico. That's Dartmouth historian Douglas Irwin again. And it was viewed as a a way to sort of reset our relationship with Mexico. And so NAFTA was partly uh, done for economic reasons, but mainly done for political reasons and foreign policy reasons. And, says Mac Dessler, it was controversial from the start. The foreign policy argument continued, but you couldn't use that alone. You had to argue that the United States got major economic benefits from the opening trade with Mexico and Canada. Labor unions and some industries were against NAFTA. They didn't want to compete against cheaper Mexican labor. Wages are much lower than wages in the United States. 
And so it probably facilitated the movement of uh, some manufacturing uh, away from the United States uh, into Mexico. Hundreds of thousands of Americans lost jobs and businesses, but millions of others prospered. It's also been a boon for U.S. multinationals and manufacturers, car producers in particular, who will create engines or chassis here in the United States and then have final assembly being done in Mexico. So there's a lot of two-way trade across the border. Another trade deal that has really divided the protectionists and the free traders is the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership. It's a trade agreement between 12 countries in North and South America, Asia, and Australia. China is notably excluded from the TPP. So one of the TPP's advantages for the United States is that it would help it compete against China, and it would have tougher environmental and labor standards than previous agreements. Well, I think if you look at the Trans-Pacific Partnership, TPP negotiations, it was innovative in a number of ways. Mike Froman was a U.S. trade representative during the Obama administration and one of the negotiators of the TPP. Labor provisions went beyond anything we had ever negotiated before. They were fully enforceable, including by trade sanctions. Froman says it corrects what's wrong with previous trade agreements. TPP was the renegotiation of NAFTA because Mexico and Canada were part of it, and it allowed us to get Mexico to accept binding and enforceable labor provisions, plus a number of reforms that Mexico decided to pursue to make sure that there could be independent unions that could collectively bargain on their own and really change the structure of their labor market. And so I agree with the critics out there who say it's unfair that we are having to compete with countries where workers don't have the ability to stand up for themselves. Trade agreements like TPP is how you deal with that. But despite these advantages, many politicians on the right and the left came out against TPP last year, including Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump, a response to protectionist voices. One of President Trump's first acts in office was to pull the United States out of the TPP, a reflection of the Republican Party's shift away from free trade. At different times in our history, Republicans and Democrats have flipped their positions on free trade agreements, says economic professor Mac Dessler. For a while in Congress, Republicans have been the open trade party and Democrats have been much more protectionist. But if you look at public opinion polls, the Democrats are much more likely to be pro-trade these days than Republicans. And there's almost never been a period in U.S. history when trade policy hasn't been controversial. There's really nothing new here. Coming up, what businesses in Tijuana are saying about the possible end of NAFTA. For us, it would make a huge, huge, huge difference because then our cost of materials is just going to skyrocket. If you want to join the conversation, find us on Facebook or tweet us at America underscore abroad. You're listening to America Abroad. I'm Madeline Brand. This August, representatives from Canada, Mexico, and the United States met in Washington to begin the process of renegotiating NAFTA. In his opening remarks, U.S. Trade Representative Robert Lighthizer took a tough stance. The views of the president about NAFTA, which I completely share, are well known. I want to be clear that he is not interested in a mere tweaking of a few provisions and a couple of updated chapters. We feel that NAFTA has fundamentally failed many, many Americans and needs major improvement. 
When it comes to NAFTA, left-leaning groups like the AFL-CIO and the Economic Policy Institute agree with the president that it's been hard on many people in middle and low-wage jobs. While CEOs and global corporations have generally benefited from NAFTA, it has failed the working people of North America. We saw downward pressure on the wages of essentially all non-college-educated workers. They lost almost $2,000 a worker a year. That's Celeste Drake of the AFL-CIO testifying before Congress and Robert Scott of the Economic Policy Institute speaking to CNBC. While both groups are pushing for changes to protect workers, neither is advocating for the wholesale scrapping of NAFTA. Environmental groups are also taking a nuanced approach. Trade is going to happen. It's inevitable. We're not opposed to trade. What we want is sort of the right kinds of trade. That's Jake Schmidt. He's director of the International Program at the Natural Resources Defense Council. And so that means that countries that want to export goods to the U.S. or they want to export goods to Europe, they have to meet some very important kind of basic environmental standards or else it's sort of unfair trade. The NRDC has been raising its voice when it comes to NAFTA, although finding a receptive ear has been difficult. You know, we put out in March with a number of environmental groups a set of principles that we felt uh, should be included in the NAFTA renegotiation um, around the environment provisions. I think we're not optimistic that the Trump administration will include many of those. So the new strategy is to channel efforts through Canada and Mexico. Most of what our effort has been is try to convince um, other uh, countries to push that pretty hard in the renegotiation of these agreements. But while there are some pushing for changes, many in industry are pushing to make sure trade barriers stay down. Stan Ryan testified on Capitol Hill on behalf of Northwest Dairy Farmers. Withdrawing from NAFTA would unwind significant progress. We must lean forward into trade. At the same hearing, Tom Leinberger, CEO of Cummins Engines, which makes diesel engines for motorboats, told Congress that after NAFTA, they actually closed a factory in Mexico and opened one in New York. And that move helped maximize efficiencies. While labor cost is a factor, it's a relatively small factor of our total cost relative to R&D, capital investment, and other flows. So we feel like we can compete very well from the U.S. when we have access to customers abroad. Of course, it's not just American businesses that have a huge stake in the outcome of the negotiations. NAFTA has been a boon to some entrepreneurs in Tijuana. Reporter Maya Croft brings us this profile of two local businesses. They're now concerned about their future. Cerveceria Insurgente is located in a three-story modern concrete building in Tijuana's upscale Zona Rio district. Business has been booming since it opened seven years ago, and the company just added a rooftop garden. Inside, workers are pouring ingredients into huge steel tanks. Bright cardboard boxes full of beer are stacked four feet high on the floor in front of the bottling machine. Their most popular beer is a strong brew called La Lupulosa, named for the Spanish word for hops. Right now, we're making an IPA. Hops, for example, don't really grow in Mexico. Pretty much 95% of the hops we use come from the U.S. During my visit, co-founder Ivan Morales shows me around and tells me his story. I was born in San Diego, grew up in Tijuana, went to school in San Diego every day and came back. So I got pretty used to crossing the border. My brother and I got really into craft beer, uh, living and studying in the U.S., specifically in San Diego. We noticed there wasn't really any craft beer to speak of in Mexico. The majority of what we use to make beer comes from the U.S. Labels, sometimes bottles, malt, hops, yeast. 
and uh, sometimes we ship it back up to to the states when we export beer up there. So there's definitely a lot of to and from involved with the border. It's also really, because of NAFTA, quite cost effective. But Morales is worried all that might change. We had been up till recently actually skeptical about whether they were going to cancel NAFTA. Like that's not going to happen. Over the last few weeks it seems maybe a little bit more realistic than we thought it would be. So. For us, it would make a huge, huge, huge difference because then our cost of materials is just going to skyrocket. If our beer is going to be way more expensive, it's not going to be a feasible market for us, and we're going to have to find somewhere else to sell that beer. Morales says because of the nature of his business, his company is extremely vulnerable to fluctuations in the price of goods as well as currency. Because we import so much of what we buy and we pay it in dollars, we depend on the dollar a lot being here in the border. So when Trump was nearing his entry into the White House, the dollar was super expensive compared to the peso, which really made us worry because we're selling our beer in pesos here in Mexico, and the prices of our raw ingredients are going up in pesos, right? But we can't really raise and drop the price every week according to what the dollar is at. When a beer is fermenting, it releases CO2 naturally through the fermentation process. Back in the brewery, Morales points to a big tank where beer is fermenting. It bubbles as it releases CO2. He's proud of what he's built, and for now, he doesn't really have a backup plan if NAFTA goes away. I was joking with my brother earlier today that we might have to just go straight to Canada for our stuff. But not everyone is so concerned about the possibility of NAFTA being canceled. If NAFTA is actually pushing to make manufacturing labor more expensive, that's going to work in our sector's favor and actually accelerate Mexico be more competitive in other types of services. That's Guillermo Mejia, managing director at MindHub, a tech incubator based out of a slick new co-working space in central Tijuana. There, startups provide software development and other tech-related services to U.S. companies like Playboy and Coca-Cola. We're really not pushing for more manufacturing jobs. We're pushing more high-quality jobs. The idea with the incubators to find those opportunities and actually beat the U.S. corporations. <laughs> A potential repeal of NAFTA is likely to hit Mexico's manufacturing industry first. In Tijuana, more than 200,000 workers are employed at some 600 assembly plants called maquiladoras, making anything from car parts to medical devices. But some predict that many of those jobs will eventually be lost to automation anyway, just like in the U.S. So entrepreneurs like Mejia are looking toward a high-tech future. He says the U.S. needs engineers, and Mexico has the talent to meet that demand. In 2015, the country produced more engineering graduates per capita than either the U.S. or Canada. Tijuana overall has around 30 colleges. Most of them have an engineering degree, uh, so there's a huge pool of talent. NAFTA offers a fast-track visa called the TN visa that makes it easier for engineers and other skilled Mexican and Canadian professionals to go to work for U.S. firms. If the deal is canceled and that goes away, Mejia, for one, sees opportunity. What is that U.S. corporation going to do? Qualified workers are not allowed to go to the U.S., and they're missing huge opportunities, huge market shares. And if they don't resolve that, there's going to be a Chinese company, a Mexican company, who's going to service their consumer base. So it's actually to our advantage. Whatever the outcome of the trade negotiations, the message being received is that Mexico's trade relationship with the U.S. should not be taken for granted. 
and businesses need to take that into account as they plan for the future. For America Abroad, I'm Maya Kroth in Tijuana, Mexico. For a broader sense of what changes in NAFTA mean for Mexico, we turn now to Monica Serrano. She's a professor at the College of Mexico, and she specializes in U.S.-Mexico relations. I asked her what parts of NAFTA have worked best for Mexico and what could be improved. There is no doubt that NAFTA has worked for Mexico as was originally planned in terms of trade and investment. Where it hasn't worked has been in economic growth. Economic growth has remained very sluggish through the two decades of NAFTA. Okay, let's say NAFTA were to go away uh, or to sunset or if the United States pulls out, what would that mean for Mexico? How would that affect Mexico? It has already affected Mexico, in effect. Since Trump got elected, investment has been kept on hold, the latest by Toyota. Given the dependence of the Mexican economy to the U.S., there is no doubt that there will be a negative impact. If NAFTA were to go, Mexico would see probably 1.2 million jobs gone. In Mexico? Yes, but the U.S. would as well. A number of states uh, would be particularly affected, such as Texas, Colorado, but also northern states from Wisconsin to other states would be affected. Well, that's interesting that you say that because the White House has said that this is about American jobs. It's about protecting American jobs and that this kind of renegotiation of NAFTA needs to happen to ensure that more American jobs do not go south of the border. And you're saying that that is not at all a guarantee, in fact, quite the opposite, that American jobs would be lost if NAFTA were renegotiated or if the United States pulls out of the agreement. Yes, because the fact of the matter is that the discourse that the Trump administration has pursued all along in relation to NAFTA is misleading in the sense that, yes, a number of jobs in the U.S. were lost as companies relocated to Mexico. But most experts foresee that if NAFTA is to go, that doesn't mean that those jobs will go back to the U.S. because companies facing the pressure of international competition would then go to Asia to maintain their international competitiveness. Can you talk about specifically how Mexican industries and companies are now looking elsewhere? We will seek diversification now. I think that they could inflict some costs in the U.S., say, in food imports. In the news today, there is the piece of news about, for the first time ever, imports of flour, Uh, to produce bread coming from Argentina. The other thing that is very important, and it's the hidden card of the Mexican government, is the security cooperation. And the Mexican government has hinted that if NAFTA were to go, Mexico's cooperation in stopping drugs flowing onto the U.S. and containing the migration flows coming through Mexico from Central America will also go away. Monica Serrano. She's a professor of international relations. She specializes in U.S.-Mexico relations at the College of Mexico. Thank you so much. Coming up. If you look at the historical record, leaving NAFTA is not going to bring jobs back to the U.S., but taking action against China might. For more on this and past episodes, head to our website at PRI.org.
You're listening to Made in America, Trade Policy in the Trump Era on America Abroad. I'm Madeline Brand. President Trump has repeatedly singled out China for its trade practices. China is upset because of the way Donald Trump is talking about trade with China. They're ripping us off, folks. It's time. I'm so happy they're upset. It's true the U.S. has a massive trade deficit with China. It's around $350 billion. But that number says more about American consumers than anything nefarious. Put simply, the trade deficit means that we've bought more than we've sold. And that's because products are made more cheaply in China than they are here in the U.S. Here's Scott Kennedy of the Center for Strategic and International Studies. It allows us to consume products at a much lower price than we would if we made them ourselves or imported them from other places. That provides additional savings to Americans who can use those monies uh, to consume elsewhere or save or invest in other things. For that reason, the trade deficit shouldn't be our biggest worry. In my opinion, China's telecom industry has gotten to where it is by theft. That's Derek Scissors. He's an expert on Asian economies at the American Enterprise Institute. It's actually stolen telecom technology from other companies. It's coerced other companies to transfer telecom technology to China. To address that challenge this August, President Trump launched a formal investigation into China's economic practices. As president of the United States, it's my duty and responsibility to protect the American workers, technology, and industry from unfair and abusive actions. And as Scott Kennedy explains, it's not just telecom that's at a competitive disadvantage. China requires foreign investors to do so through joint ventures, through partnerships with Chinese companies, often with the Chinese company holding a majority of stake in the company. And they require foreign companies to provide technology in the process of participating in these joint venture deals. I think one of the things that the U.S. could do would be to push China to be more innovative on their own or do so through legal means. State subsidies are a major issue, too. i just give you an example. China has a variety of rules related to uh, the production of car batteries. And these are quite discriminatory, which essentially China only provides subsidies to domestic battery makers. So we have a situation where China is allowed to come and compete here with its products, and we're not allowed to go there and compete with our products. That's not an acceptable situation. But for now, American businesses can fight back against unfair Chinese competition. Emily Johnson brings us this story from Virginia in the Blue Ridge Mountains. I'm on the factory floor at Vaughn Bassett, the largest manufacturer of wooden bedroom furniture in the U.S. Safety coordinator Brian Revis gives me a pair of safety glasses and shows me around the vast space, which smells like sawdust. He points out a conveyor belt where workers are building 16 nightstands every minute. And the process that's going on here is Henry Ford's assembly line personified. You know, every employee has a specific job to do to successfully put that piece of furniture from point A to B. Vaughn Bassett is the last furniture factory standing here in Galax, which used to be home to six of them before cheap imported furniture began disrupting the American market. Many have moved operations overseas where manufacturing is cheaper or shut down altogether. Yeah, we had um, BC Vaughn, TG Vaughn, EC Dotson, Web 1, Web 2, all within eyesight of this facility. Unfortunately, they're gone, and chances are they probably not be back. Galax sits at the gateway to the Blue Ridge Mountains and calls itself the world's capital of old-time mountain music. There has been a pivot toward tourism in recent years, but the lost factories loom large over the town. 
The 650 people who still have employment at Von Bassett consider themselves very lucky. For many of them, it's a family affair. My mother worked here for 35 years. She just retired probably 12 years ago, but a lot of folks are impacted by these furniture factories. I mean, uh, it's, it, it's a vital part of our mainstay, our life, and we're very fortunate to have it. Fortunate, yes, but it's no accident that Revis and the others at Von Bassett still have their jobs when so many others don't. To show you why, we need to make another stop. Over the border in North Carolina, where the Bassett family is gearing up for the world-famous semi-annual home furnishings trade show in High Point. As we cross this next door, we're going to move into our artisan and post division, and that's our Rolls-Royce of solid wood. It's Doug Bassett is taking me around Von Bassett's showroom, where signs proudly proclaim that the attractively displayed furniture is made in the USA. Doug was named president in 2012, and his brother Wyatt is CEO. In recent years, he says, the company has focused on doing things that their competitors can't. About a third to 40 percent of our line now is solid wood. And the three woods we work with are solid cherry, solid maple, and solid oak. And those species don't exist in Asia. Some of their competition comes from Mexico. But where furniture manufacturing is concerned, the heavy hitters come from Asia. For companies like Von Bassett, NAFTA was largely insignificant compared to the seismic disruption they experienced when China joined the World Trade Organization in 2001. How are you, darling? I'm good. Good thank to you. see you. Welcome back home. Thank you. Thank you. Rose, Rose is in the book Factory Man, and we affectionately describe her as our spy. She was our translator who helped us when we were researching what was really happening in China and in Vietnam and, and all over uh, Asia. Savvy business practices like getting into native hardwoods help the bottom line. But it's this fact-finding trip to China that has the most to do with Von Bassett's survival. This and the sheer stubbornness of Doug and Wyatt's father. That's pretty much the tour. I mean, we can sit down and then I'll pull dad in. Once. John Bassett III was born in a Virginia town named after his family, heir to the Bassett furniture dynasty, with sawdust in his veins, as he likes to say. His life became a stuff of legend when he spearheaded an anti-dumping petition against China in 2004, after discovering that Chinese furniture makers were selling exports to the U.S. at less than the cost of their materials. Once we discovered it and bought that products, and we reverse engineered them and saw the price what they were selling it for was under that cost of manufacturing. And that's one of the elements of dumping is when you are selling your product in another country cheaper than you can actually make it. And what you're trying to do is drive all those companies out of business, and therefore you can capture that market. In other words, American furniture makers weren't just going out of business due to the inevitable trade winds of globalization. They were being targeted for assassination. Bassett refused to die. He went to China, got the evidence, filed the petition, and won. $46 million in anti-dumping duties, which the Bassetts poured right back into the company. We really want what is best and fair for this country. We don't want an advantage. We don't want a disadvantage. And do we have to apply ourselves to compete internationally? Yes, and we're willing to do that. But how does this all fit into the big picture? Georgetown professor of international business diplomacy, Mark Bush, says however damaging it was to furniture manufacturers when China joined the WTO, other trade sectors have benefited massively. They just happen to be more intangible. 
In fact, since China joined the WTO in 2001, U.S. exports of traded services have increased nearly 800%. So far from being the worst thing, it's perhaps one of the best things that could have happened to an economy that, again, derives three quarters of GDP from services. But, he says, acknowledging this is political poison. It's hard to talk about traded services on the campaign trail because they sound college educated. And we still have this view that in 2017, someone can walk off the high school graduation stage into a manufacturing job and enjoy the middle class income that is the American dream. The problem is that that's really hard to do in 2017, not because of trade agreements out there and not even because of trade, but because there's a simple reality, which is that wages are very high in the U.S. for producing things that look like cheap wares that consumers have become accustomed to buying from foreign countries where cheap labor is far more abundant. Trump's been threatening to impose more tariffs on China, but all he really means by that is that he'd file more trade remedies against them, exactly what John Bassett III did. A 2014 book by Beth Macy titled Factory Man tells John's whole story. One very famous actor liked the book so much that he's optioned it for an HBO miniseries. Well, if he does play me, I mean, can you think of a better actor to play you than Tom Hanks? For America Abroad, I'm Emily Johnson in Galax, Virginia. The European Union is the largest trading partner with the United States, and a new trade deal with the EU has been in the works, the Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership, or TTIP. But it was already having trouble getting ratified before Trump came into office. Now it's completely stalled. TTIP is in freezer. That's Jyrki Katainen. He's former prime minister of Finland and currently vice president at the European Commission. He says now European negotiators have curbed their ambitions. Instead of dreaming on big bilateral trade agreement, we could take more pragmatic approach and address problems on sectoral basis. But uh, cooperation on trade agreements, I don't believe this to happen anytime soon. This realist approach is already affecting European industry. William Noah Glucroft sends us this report from Berlin. Economic borders are far blurrier and less fixed than national ones. This may be nowhere more apparent than in the U.S.-EU trade relationship. People don't necessarily know this, but the trade integration is far greater between the EU and the United States than between China and the United States. That's Mark Hollerberg, Dean of Public Management and Political Economy at Hertie School of Governance in Berlin. Walk around Berlin, you do see a lot of products. I've got an iPhone and an Apple sitting here. Microsoft is right around the corner. They sell a lot of IT products in general on the European market, and uh, both sides have uh, a lot to gain from this relationship. And likewise, a lot to lose. As Donald Trump pushes a more protectionist agenda, business leaders on both sides of the Atlantic are nervous. They're concerned about the future of a decades-old trade relationship long assumed sacrosanct. With the Trump administration, you might think you have something, but then it shifts the next day. There might be a tweet that nobody knows about, and then you don't know, is it just the president? Is it a new official American policy? It's still too early in his administration to know the answer. Officials at the U.S. Embassy in Berlin, who deal with trade and economic policy, are keen to emphasize that relations in both directions remain as strong and warm as ever. But they decline to comment on what, if any, changes to those relations may look like. They may not know themselves, as they're still waiting for bosses. A number of top posts in the Trump administration remains to be confirmed by the Senate or even nominated by the president. 
Until then, it's status quo, says Bernhard Mattes, the president of the American Chamber of Commerce in Germany, or Amcham. But... Clearly there are concerns, and um, as long as decisions are not made, concerns about trade restrictions, the future of NAFTA, import or export duties. So these concerns are expressed clearly. And so America first, if it's protectionism, I don't support that and our membership as well. Um, yeah, here we have a few colleagues actually producing the cannula. Our employees here are trained for at least half From a, a year quiet suburban year. corner of Germany's capital, the company Berlin Heart produces highly specialized heart pumps for people around the world suffering from severe heart failure. Uh, at the beginning of the year, we were in negotiations uh, with a US-based company to uh, jointly develop a new assist device. Uh, so our board said, you know, maybe we should wait to make that deal because uh, we don't know what will change for foreign investors, for example. And that's why we stopped that. And now we are waiting uh, what's happening. For Sven Friedel, the company's managing director, sound trade relationships with the U.S. are a matter of life and death. Berlin Heart depends on the U.S. for 40% of its sales, and 100 people in the U.S. depend on Berlin Heart to stay alive while awaiting a transplant. It's really unpredictable what is the next step of this administration. One element of Trump trade policy is clear, a strong preference for bilateral deals. U.S. Trade Representative Robert Lighthizer, speaking at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington in September. We prefer bilateral trade agreements to plurilateral or multilateral trade agreements. Not only can you negotiate better agreements, but you can enforce them more easily. But the U.S. isn't the only major economy that can throw its economic weight around, says trade policy expert Mark Hollerberg. The European Union, which by law negotiates trade as a bloc, is bigger than the U.S. in terms of population and almost as big in GDP. It isn't waiting for the Trump administration to make up its mind. The Europeans are saying, well, if we can't do things with the Americans, we'll do them with the Japanese, maybe even China. And so it's looking around and saying, how else could we do these sorts of treaties? For America Abroad, this is William Noah Glucroft in Berlin. What everyone wants in the end is for Americans to have jobs, for wages to go up, and for our goods to be competitive in as many foreign markets as possible. While trade can help with those things, some say there are other ways to achieve those goals. Here's former U.S. Trade Representative Michael Froman. People are worried about their jobs, they're worried about their wages, and they tend to blame trade agreements because you don't get a chance to vote against technology. You don't really get a chance to vote against globalization. It's just a force out there. You do get a chance to vote against trade agreements. And so, as a result, trade becomes a scapegoat for a lot of very legitimate concerns about the impact on jobs, wage stagnation, widening income inequality. One would hope, coming out of this last election, there would be a lot more attention to the issues of how do we help people who feel left behind? We as a government don't do a particularly good job of addressing it. Improving the economy and American job prospects, that depends on American competitiveness. Trade deals can help level the playing field, but an even bigger factor is encouraging innovation says Edward Alden. His new book is called Failure to Adjust, How Americans Got Left Behind in the Global Economy. This is not all a trade story. A lot of this is a technology story. Some of it's an education story. Should the U.S., should government officials, whether local or national, should they have done something more to try to even out 
that disparity to help the people in the Akrons of the world in some form of job retraining or something along those lines? Yeah, there, there's all sorts of things that should have been done. The United States spends less on this as a percentage of our economy than any other country in the OECD. If you look at the Europeans, you know, Denmark spends proportionately 15 times as much as the United States in trying to assist workers who lose their jobs. You lose your job in Denmark, governments and NGOs and others that sweep in, find out what your skills are, where the holes are. Your receipt of government benefits is contingent on retraining for new jobs. And they get people back into the workforce pretty quickly. The Germans do this better. Sweden does this better. Everyone does it better. Do you see any moves in that direction now? Very little, unfortunately. I mean, we have a political problem in Washington, which is the party that has historically favored free trade, the Republican Party, doesn't believe in government programs or redistributive tax policies or anything else that might tackle the inequality that trade brings. The Democrats on the other side favor a lot of those things, but they don't like trade agreements. So we have not been able to build a political coalition in Washington that says, yes, trade is good, but we've got to do a lot more to help Americans succeed in a competitive global economy. If you do not address these distribution problems, people will look for something to blame. And it's easy to blame foreign competition. It's easy to blame immigrants. So the political consequences of the failure to address these challenges are enormous. And we have a president right now who, who may well rip up the rules of global trade that the United States spent the last 75 years painstakingly putting together. So there are going to be both economic costs and there's going to be a sharply diminished U.S. position in the world. Edward Alden, he's a senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations and author of the book, Failure to Adjust, How Americans Got Left Behind in the Global Economy. Thanks so much. Thank you. President Trump's bold declarations against multilateral trade deals have had a chilling effect for negotiators in North America, in China, and the European Union. Moving forward, though, it's unclear how much the Trump administration will uphold its protectionist posture. There's growing pressure from American exporters, manufacturers, and farmers alike not to be protectionist. What is certain, though, is that the pace of globalization is only accelerating. Trade deals alone won't fulfill all the promises President Trump has made to American workers. This Hour of America Abroad was written and edited by Rob Sachs and produced by Shoshi Shmulevitz with additional production help from Flan Williams. Nolan Schneider provided our theme music and assisted with sound design. Audio engineering support was provided by Mario Saavedra at KCRW. Special thanks to producers Hannah Harris-Green and Mari Karpinen. You can hear past programs by subscribing to our podcast on iTunes, finding us on the Public Radio International app, or by visiting our website, pri.org. I'm Madeline Brand, and this is America Abroad from Public Radio International. Support for this show was provided by Public Radio International stations and listeners like you. PRI, Public Radio International.